turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the last in our series on communion, but not our last week taking communion. Uh, we'll do that again next week and the week after and the week after that and the week after that until we're all dead. Okay, that's the plan. We're just going to do it the whole time. Okay, uh, but we are coming back to our verse-by-verse -verse study in 1 Corinthians, which we left off before um, I left on sabbatical. And so if you would turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, 1 Corinthians 11. We'll start in verse 17 and read through verse 34. Uh, and then we'll pray and study this passage. Paul writes, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there, also, there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Uh, Jesus, we ask for understanding of this so that we can understand you. Uh, we pray for uh, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to be opened, um, not so that we can uh, understand mere words on a page. We want a relationship with the living word. Um, so we pray that you would meet us here that you would draw us close to you, that you would uh, rid us of distractions, um, that you would heal us of our forgetfulness, and that we would be able to see this word as something that lifts Christ high and, and exalts him and allows us to meet with him. Be here with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're going out of order here in our Corinthian study. Uh, but going in order in our uh, communion study. Uh, when we were in 1 Corinthians last year, we made it to chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now going in order then, if we were just to read through the book of 1 Corinthians the way we normally do, um, 
then we should be talking about head coverings and men with long hair. But you're just going to have to wait for those juicy tidbits till next week. Um, so we're going, we're going out of order slightly so that we can, um, well, for reasons you can guess, because this is a passage about communion. And now our short series on communion will overlap with our 1 Corinthians study, bring us right back into that book. Now, as you guys know, 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. Paul is putting out fires left and right. And he says as much in verse 17, where we started our reading today. It says, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. <laughs> when you guys get together, it is not a good thing. And his first correction in this passage is that there are divisions among them. And he says, yeah, I, I believe that. I mean, that's something he'd already addressed all the way back in chapter 1. And in verse 19, he identifies the reason for these divisions, for these factions. He says, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. That's kind of confusing. Um, there are two ways to read this. Uh, one, Paul is saying divisions within the church in Corinth are necessary so that you can tell who the good guys are. Um, it's true that while division is painful and sad, it is sometimes necessary in maintaining a purity within the church. You think of Ananias and Sapphira, that was division in an extreme way. However, you might also read this with the sarcasm that we've seen elsewhere in this chapter. Now, next week, when we go to the, the first half of chapter 11, you'll read verse 2, where Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. That is measurably false. That's, I mean, if that were true, we wouldn't have 1 Corinthians. And he says later on in the chapter, no, I'm not praising you. I'm not praising you for this. He says, you remember me in all things. No, and earlier in the, the book, he said, you don't even think I'm an apostle, right? He says, you keep all the traditions. He's like, no, no, no. This is the tradition that I received from Jesus. You guys get drunk at communion, okay? So there, there is a, a thick layer of sarcasm coming from Paul. Paul could be saying, oh, of course there's factions among you. How else are those of you who think you're better than everyone else going to be recognized as the super Christians you think you are? Now, as strange as it may be for some of us to imagine irony and sarcasm existing in the mouth of the Holy Apostle himself, I, I think this is actually an, a simpler reading of the text in its context. And he says, it is because of this division that the Lord's Supper they think they're celebrating is not the Lord's Supper. What should be a blessing has become a judgment on them because of the division and the arrogance of those who are partaking. Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What you're doing, it's not communion. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? <laughs> Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He says, get drunk on your own time, not at church. He says, he says do, you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now, churches eating together, members of the church eating together, that's great. Meals together are great. What Paul is describing here in Corinth, not great, not great, not great. Some were going hungry, some were getting drunk. It was a huge mess, a lot of cutting in line at the, the buffet. Now, if you, if you skip down to verse 34, you're going to see, he's going to offer just some practical advice here. Now, there's spiritual problems, to be sure, and that's what we'll spend most of the time on, but there's just plain good sense that Paul gives in verse 33, 34. He says, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Duh. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. 
this is sort of a sidebar to the whole communion topic, but it will come around now and now and then when someone will ask, why don't we make it more, why isn't this more like a, like a meal? You know, tiny cracker, little juice. This isn't a very good supper, let's be honest. Well, once again, eating together is great. But if you've come to communion to satisfy your stomach, you're doing it wrong. Paul says if you're hungry, if that's why you're coming, if you're hungry, eat before you come. Eat at home. There was a meal the Corinthians shared, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper. You might even remember the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. The Lord's Supper wasn't the supper. It was, that was Passover. They had Passover. That was a meal. After supper, he took the cup and said, now this is the cup of the new covenant. Okay? This isn't supposed to be lunch. It's never been supposed to be lunch. It's supposed to be the food for immortality. It's supposed to be the medicine for your soul. It's supposed to be meeting Jesus. Now back to Corinth. They were making a mockery of the Lord's table and of Christian unity by mixing these up so much, saying, yeah, whenever you eat, it's just like, you know, you kind of receive Jesus or whatever, but I get that last sandwich there. You know, <laughs> now we didn't get into this that much uh, in our communion series, I mentioned last week it could have been a lot longer, but I wanted to keep it to one month and get back to our Corinthian study. So we didn't talk about this so much, but the communion that we have with Christ at the Lord's Supper is also communion we share with each other. Um, Christ is received, yes, but Christ is shared. This is something we all kind of assume, hopefully. Uh, it's the nature of the thing. We don't have communion by ourselves. We have it together as a church. Having communion by yourself is a little bit like baptizing yourself. It was not the intention, not how it's supposed to go. Okay, it's very important to realize, especially in our extremely individualistic society, your personal relationship with Jesus isn't limited to your person. It goes beyond you. Your baptism brought you into a family and you didn't baptize yourself. Christ ministers to you with other people, through other people, and chapter 12 of Corinthians, we're going to go into that deep, right? It's all about the body and our members of one body. Um, we collectively together as a family take the body of Christ. And we collectively as a family are the body of Christ. Just when you thought the mysteries couldn't get any deeper, right? Uh, St. Augustine, he went real deep with this idea. He said that communion, about communion, that we become what we receive. We receive the body of Christ we become the body of Christ in a mysterious way. And there is a connection to receiving the body and then being the body. Neither one can done, be done properly in isolation or with selfishness. That togetherness that we believe in, it's something that we believe Christ accomplished once and for all on the cross. The unity we have is not just an ideal or an idea, but it is the unity of the Spirit. It's a reality. The Holy Spirit of God that is in each one of you makes you one body with each other. A shared meal shows the unity that we believe, and in some way it accomplishes that which we believe. How we eat together shows how well we believe what God says about unity. This is my family. This is my body. I am one with them. I'm caring for them. Our table manners show what kind of civilization we are a part of. Now try and remember back, 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 way back to the month of August of last year. Uh, the assignment that I gave you in August was to eat together. And I absolutely loved hearing about how well that went. You guys did good. Um, I didn't hear of any of those meals looking like this one in Corinth that Paul's writing about. And that's a really good thing too. 
The meals that you share with the people in your church, whether it's all together here on a, on a Sunday, that's next week, potluck, or in each other's homes, those are, those are great. But that's not communion of the body and blood of Christ that Paul talks about in chapter 10. And it's not what he's telling them to come and join together and, and receive at, uh, in their gatherings. It's not the same as the thing we're going to read about in the next verses. It is a meal that proves something about what we believe about communion and unity. We believe that since you and I both have, have partaken in the body and blood of Christ, we are one body, and so we behave accordingly. And one way is, is sharing meals together, being together. We live together now as one body, one family, one church. But those meals are different from this thing we call communion. And if, if I invite you over to eat and you say, I ate before I came, that's offensive. Okay, if you come to communion and you're like, yeah, I didn't want to be tempted to take two, so I had breakfast today, like that, that's just good sense, okay? Different meals. We believe that since we were both baptized into one body, since we have both partaken of one body, we are now one body. And Paul makes the distinction between meal that you eat to get full and meal that we have as a renewal of a covenant. And now Paul is going to tell them, remind them of what the Lord's Supper actually is. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Pause there. He's already told them this. He's already delivered them the rules about communion. And then they've let it become something else. He says, I've already told you about this. And I received it from the Lord. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. He received this from the Lord. Now the words he uses, we looked at this last week. They're very similar to what we read in the Gospels, which makes sense because that is really the primary way of receiving from the Lord. It's through Scripture. Uh, the Gospels were already in circulation at this time except, except uh, John. But however Paul received it, whether he just read it in Luke's writings or he received it in a vision, the important thing is that he received it, he did not produce it. This isn't Paul's idea. This is not the church's idea. It's the Lord's idea and it's for you. This happened on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. This already sets a tone for the entire meal. It's not a time to get drunk. It's not a time to gorge yourself, to cut in line for food. The thing that we are remembering is predicated on a crime. We're remembering a betrayed Savior. When Jesus announced at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me. What did all the disciples do? They all asked, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I going to do that? Is that how my story ends? Why is it important for us to begin our remembering with betrayal? So that we can ask the same questions. Lord, have I wronged you? Is it I? We are coming to a betrayed Savior, and we need to examine ourselves to find out if we're the betrayer. Paul commands that we examine ourselves. It is the announcement of a betrayal that led the disciples to do this hard, sobering work of self-examination. So every week, we read this verse from Corinthians. It says, it was on the night that he was betrayed that he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The word given thanks it's, it's where we get the word Eucharist. Uh, it's not a word we use that much, but it may be a good reminder um, of the, the centrality of thanksgiving when we take communion. We are coming to give thanks for God's offering of his son. We are here giving thanks for fellowship or communion with our Savior. 
Also, we may be humbled at the strength of Jesus, who was betrayed, arrested, murdered, and it was in the midst of this crime that he offers thanks to the Father for this bread that he's able to give his disciples. All of this is for us. All his suffering was for our benefit, and Christ does not begrudge you these blessings even though they cost him everything. He offered thanks. And in receiving him in communion, we are thankful. I'm very thankful that you guys have stuck with me through five weeks of this. I am. I'm thankful that we get to have communion every week. I'm looking forward to coming church like I've never done before because Jesus is willing to meet with us here. He broke bread and called it his body, which is broken for you. And the point of all of this, of course, isn't just the Last Supper, it's the cross. That's where the body was broken. And it is the crucifixion that is for us. It's a gift. His body is broken for you. The cross is for you. His body is for the forgiveness of your sins. It is through the breaking of his body that we gain access into heaven, into the very presence of God. We come boldly to the throne of grace through a broken body. Remember how when Jesus died, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom? And how that, that veil was what separated the most holy place from everything else? from everybody else. And in Hebrews, it says that we are now able to enter into the most holy place through the veil that is his flesh. His body broken for us is now how we enter into the presence of God. It's through the broken body of Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Now in verse 24, there are three commands. Take, eat, and do. If nothing else, these are simple reminders that communion, while something we have been talking about a lot recently, is not primarily something to be talked about, argued about, preached about. It is something to take and to eat. It is something to do. We receive it and we eat it. And when we do, we don't analyze it. We do it in remembrance of Christ as fellowship with Christ. We talked about how this is more than just us remembering God. How a memorial offering, a memorial meal in the Old Testament was you and God, really. It's God remembering his promises to you. But we also know the plain and simple fact that we are forgetful and easily distracted. It's possible to go to church and not go to the cross. You've done it and so have I. This would be a mistake, but it's an easy mistake. It is possible to write sermons without the cross. I can preach sermons I can preach scripture and not make much of Christ and him crucified. We are forgetful and easily distracted. And so we do this to remember, to refocus, to realign our priorities. And we say, that's right, this, this, the crucifixion, the body of Jesus that was broken for me, this is what I need today and every day. This is the food for my soul. I will starve without it. I've been hungry the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, these are things that I need, not as peripheral truths or as entry-level doctrines that I will someday graduate from. I need them for my daily bread. I need the gospel for the sustenance of my soul. How different, then, this craving for the body of Jesus from the gluttonous feasting in Corinth. Could the Corinthians say, while cutting in line and taking the last four meatballs, that they were doing this in remembrance of the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world. No, they could not. They might behave that way in their own homes, but communion is not a common meal. 
We read this a few weeks back. Justin Martyr, he wrote this in 155 AD. It's a long time ago. He said, for not as common bread and common drink do we receive these. This isn't a common meal. It is a covenant, which is something Paul brings up in the next verse. Verse 25. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. A covenant is not something you make once and forget about. It is something you live in. It's not just a promise you make once, you know, sign on the dotted line. A covenant changes your existence. Marriage is a covenant. You change from single person to husband or wife, and that's what you are until death do you part. In taking the cup, we are not remembering a once upon a time covenant. We are living in a covenant now. We are recognizing our place and our identity as a covenant people, as a new covenant people, and recognizing that the one thing that makes us new covenant people or that gives us access to any of the promises and benefits of that covenant is the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I made a big deal out of this last week, but I'll give it to you again here. Communion is the new covenant. That's what the gospels say. Matthew, Mark, Luke, here in 1 Corinthians. Now we describe the new covenant by its benefits, forgiveness, redemption, access to the Father, fellowship with God himself. But the one thing of which the scriptures say this is the new covenant is communion. To be new covenant people, we go to the table and receive. What a picture of the new covenant in contrast to the covenant it replaced, right? Rather than the sign of the covenant being an offering or a tithe or the original sign of the covenant, circumcision, instead of us offering or making a commitment, we renew the covenant, we remember the covenant, we live in the covenant by receiving a gift, by receiving a meal, by receiving Jesus. This is the new covenant. All of this, of course, is done in remembrance of him, as a memorial to him, and for us to remember that which we must never, ever forget. In verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Communion is a sermon. This is a proclamation. We proclaim his death, the real physical death of Jesus of Nazareth, the real crucifixion, the real bleeding. We proclaim that his death was sacrificial, that it was necessary, and that it was sufficient. It was effective. We say, had Christ not died and rose again, we would still be in our sins. We would be without hope. We are proclaiming against the heresies that say matter doesn't matter, the physical world doesn't matter, and only spiritual things matter. We say, no, Christ came in the flesh, and his death was very, very physical. We confess Jesus came in the flesh. And against the heresies that say Jesus was only a human, and that his death was nothing more than an example to us of sacrifice, we say, no, this is the Lord's death. He is God, a very God. He was a perfect sacrificial lamb. It was God himself who suffered. This is what we proclaim every time we take communion. Communion was the standard by which the heretics were judged. Remember, you, you must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. You must believe that he who came in the flesh is God, a very God. And we celebrate that when we receive him. This is what we proclaim and we are committed to proclaiming these truths by these means of bread and wine, until he comes. There's another meal we're waiting for, isn't there? There's, there's feasting in heaven. Coming to Jesus in communion is real fellowship, but it's still just a foretaste of glories divine. 
As Job said, these are the mere edges of his ways. In verse 27, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now this, perhaps more than any other passage on this topic, shows us the holy realities that we are handling when we come to the Lord's table. Um, Communion is not a gesture. It is symbolic, yes. It is a sign that points to heavenly realities, but it is not an empty sign or an ineffectual symbol. A picture of a person is a symbol of them. To destroy the picture is not to be guilty of their body and blood. Or you could use Zwingli's wedding ring analogy. It says communion is kind of like a wedding ring, right? You take off the ring and you could throw it off, throw it across the room. That would be insulting. Might be part of a fight that takes a long time for you to recover from, but it would be quite the exaggeration to say it's the same thing as being guilty of physical abuse. It's a line you're not crossing. Communion is physical. And to take it in an unholy way, in an unworthy manner, is to drink condemnation or judgment on yourself. Do not take communion in an unworthy manner. What is unworthy? Well, the drunkenness, the selfishness, the gluttony that was mentioned earlier in the chapter, I think that would qualify. I think that, but, but I think there's more than that. To partake in an unworthy manner is to take communion without examination, both of the sacrament and of your own soul. In verse 27, it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, each one has to examine himself. I can't examine you. I'm not doing that. Okay, You have to examine yourself and be aware of the holy things that you are about to handle when you come to take communion. In verse 31, it says, For if we judge ourselves, that self-examination, we would not be judged. The judgments of the sickness and the death that he describes. He says you wouldn't, you wouldn't have caught, uh, gotten yourself into that trouble if you had taken this seriously from the first. Examine yourself. Look at your life. Take stock. There are things the Spirit would draw your mind to. Let him then. There are sins you may need to repent of. Then repent of them and be forgiven. There is forgiveness the Lord wishes for you to receive. So receive it. Examine yourself. Judge yourself. And then take and eat and drink and rejoice with thanksgiving that you have been forgiven by the blood of God. To eat in an unworthy manner would be to eat selfishly, gluttony, drunkenness. It would be to eat carelessly, not considering the serious thing that we're doing here and the dire situation our souls are in when we come into contact with the living God. And it would be not eating with the knowledge of the presence of Christ. In verse 29 again, look at verse 29. It says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. To not discern or recognize the Lord's body is not to recognize that Jesus is here. We become his body, we partake of his body. Jesus is here. To not recognize that communion is not just you enjoying a meal with another Christian, right? It's not, it's that both you have to recognize that you and the person sitting next to you are receiving Jesus together and being shaped into his image together. And that should affect the way you treat other people and the way you encounter communion. 
to remind you of 1 Corinthians 10, 17, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? To not discern that this cup and this bread is fellowship with Jesus is to take of it in an unworthy manner. This is to profane the table of the Lord, to count as common something that God has said is holy. That's what the Corinthians are doing, right? They're making it a common meal, and he says, no, 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 you eat at your home. This isn't common. It's to make common something that was intended to be holy. Discerning the Lord's body is realizing what is going on here. It's not a common meal. Discerning the Lord's body is to discern that, yes, Jesus, Emmanuel, is God with us. Yes, he has given you his flesh to eat. Not in a cannibalistic way, but still in a real way that defies explanation. His presence is not imaginary. He's here whether or not you think about him. Spiritual doesn't mean pretend. Just like physical isn't the only end all be all of reality. And when we talk about him being here, his real presence, we are not going to solve theological debates that have been going on for centuries. But there is one way of thinking of this that might be helpful for you. We pray, our Father who are in heaven. God is our Father. We confess that whenever we say, our Father who are in heaven. I also have a dad who goes to church here. There's the dad who raised me, and then there's God. Well, let me ask you, who's my real father? Do you see how the word real suddenly takes on uh, a bit more importance and perhaps a bit more texture than, well, who is my physical father? It's like that's a nonsense question in this case. Who's, who's more real? Listen, God is more real and more really your father and more really present here than you could possibly imagine. Jesus says, this is my body. And we say, really? He says, more real than you know. He is more present than I am. God is more real than I am. Now, a failure to discern the Lord's body and a failure to examine yourself is essentially a profaning of that which is holy. And Paul tells the church that they are suffering consequences of this in real time. He says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Sleep is code for dead. Not a very good code. God himself was judging the church in Corinth for profaning the table of the Lord. Now, it's true that it seems like this kind of thing happened a lot more in the early church than it does now, but that is certainly no reason to take any of this less seriously. You think of Ananias and Sapphira struck dead for lying to Peter. It seems unlikely we're going to have God kill people in church, but the serious consequence in Scripture shows us that we need to take these issues, issues of honesty in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the case of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. We take these things very, very seriously. In like manner, the people in Corinth, they're suffering from weakness and sickness. They had had many funerals recently. Paul says the reason for this uptick in sickness, weakness, and death is because you have made a practice of taking lightly what God takes seriously. You have taken communion in an unworthy manner, selfishly, carelessly, ignorantly. The Corinthians were doing this, and God was judging them. Verse 32 explains why. But when we are judged, we're chastened, chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. There were some who were weak, some who were sick, some who had died as a result of God correcting them as his children. Now, I do not think we can overstate the importance of this thing that we do, that we so often take for granted. I do not think we can overstate the holiness of the thing that we do when we take communion. But holy things are dangerous. Touch the ark, you die. Enter the temple, 
and you come out a judged man, even if you're the king himself. Holy things are dangerous. Take this seriously. But the beautiful thing about this is Paul, in correcting some of the most grievous sins we have recorded in Scripture, okay, of the, the worst church we've ever heard about is in the Bible. It's Corinth. And in, in correcting them, he does not say, do not draw near. It's too good for you. He does not say, you're too sinful. Back up. Don't come near the table. It'll kill you. No, no, no. He says, examine yourself and deal with what you need to deal with. And then come to the feast. Take. Eat. He recognizes that it's dangerous, it's holy, it's important, but does not consider the saints of Corinth as unworthy to receive it. He knows that they receive it in an unworthy manner, and he's like, we got to correct that for sure. But the objective was not to prevent participation, but rather to make participation in the body of Christ the thing the Lord intended it to be. I want, I want to do the same thing. And I'm asking you to do the same thing. Please take your soul seriously. Take the church seriously. Take the Lord seriously. You took communion today. You're going to do it again next week. Take it seriously. Prepare yourself. Next Sunday, when you wake up, remind yourself that you are going to meet with Christ. Some self-examination would be in order. You may find that you are weak, spiritually weak or physically weak. Confess your weakness and give thanks that the Lord has known all of them for himself to our weaknesses, no stranger. He is able to sympathize. Then having acknowledged such weaknesses, set your mind on the table where the Lord has given bread to strengthen man's heart and wine to make him glad. Psalm 104 verse 15. In examining yourselves, you may realize that you are very sick indeed. Christ heals our bodies and the incarnation and physical resurrection promised us that the, it promises that these bodies will be restored completely. But you may see that your sickness lies deeper than the flesh. You can confess those things. And then set your mind on the table of the Lord. Ignatius of Antioch called the communion table the medicine for immortality. You may be sick. And some of your spiritual sickness may be caused by spiritual malnutrition. And Christ has given himself to you as food, and he has given you this means of receiving him by faith. Christ is willing to meet with you. He is intent on meeting with you. He desires to abide with you. He has made a covenant with you to be your God, to be with you, to have fellowship with you. And communion is that covenant. So we come to the table of the Lord and we give thanks that our God has made this way of having fellowship with his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, that you have promised to be our God, to be with us, to dwell with us, to abide with us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, we worship you, we praise you, we thank you for your presence, and ask that we would be mindful of it always. We pray that you would continue in your faithfulness to strengthen your church with yourself, nothing less. Bless the people of God. Amen. Amen. Amen.